the Silver Voices Project, which allowed for digitization and sharing of this archival audio, was made possible by a grant from the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Services, grant number MA30190681194. The views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this audio do not necessarily represent those of the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And if you want to stop it momentarily, just push it down. Right, you don't okay. have to do anything else then. What was that? November 10th, 1906. And you were you were born in Vienna. Vienna. Where? Uh, what? What was the uh, the address? Where, where did you Vienna? live? Vienna. Yeah. Here. You remember? The address in Vienna was Josef Skassen Neun. I remember that now. Isn't that that's strange? Josef. Josef Strass. Josef Skassen. It's J O F. Yeah. Josephs. I write it down for you. Here, yeah. I have a blank sheet of paper here. But I have no eyeglasses. It doesn't matter. It's interesting. Could you hand me a pencil there? Also, another writing it? Yes. It's. Bezirk means, um, here is 1014, you see, and that is, a, probably doesn't exist anymore. <coughs> so this is J -O Like in France, you see Paris 16, Paris 15. Oh, like uh, arrondissement. Yeah. Arrondissement, exactly. We have a zone, or we got a map. Uh, don't, don't ask me, because maps Vienna. I can't read. Well, listen. <laughs> We thought you might be able to just find the, the general uh, general location. This is a huge map. This is in the middle of the city of Vienna. What's that? Right, right down, right in the middle. Yes. <coughs> and also, it's in, in the eighth arrondissement. Uh, and you if you area? find it, it's fine. I couldn't find a thing. Maybe we should look for the street later. There's the, there's the river. Oh, that is not on the river. And don't forget, I haven't been there for 150 years. I don't know. <laughs> well, I we, always, we understand. I always feel, say they can drip me, drop me, and drop me from an airplane in the middle of Vienna, and that is the only city I wouldn't recognize. <laughs> because you didn't. Uh, you were so young when you were there. Well, not so young, but then I was so much away, and you see, never went back, and nothing of the kind. So many things. I don't know where that is. Maybe later. We can find out where the hell that is. Mm. Okay, maybe tomorrow we'll look for the street. Yeah, if we can find the street, yeah. then we can. Uh... That would be. But it was somewhere in this small... kind of downtown district, <coughs> you think? I don't know. At that time, downtown didn't exist. It was very small. W was it near? Small. Was it near any um, landmarks that we might be able to find? Yes, it was near or the parliament. Uh, near the parliament, that it was. Hmm. What kind of a neighborhood was it at the time? Was it? Uh, <coughs> Is it very well-to-do, uh, is it a, like a big house, or...? Can you see... Of course, what I'm seeing now, you can take, get down with your tape recorder, but it's not to be of any importance, you see. It's, it's yes, it was, of course. Yeah. My father was a very wealthy man, and the house was a very specific house. Also, it was haunted, I have heard later on. And it was a house of a count, who sold that house because he was very unhappy there. Everything went wrong. And that was a little palace, hmm. you see, of 16 or 18 rooms. Of course, very elegant. And so that's where I was born. My mother was French, of aristocratic background, and my father was not French, but half Italian. What the? Half Viennese and half Italian. What was his name? What was his name was German. He was a physician who never, who never worked as a physician because he was too rich. Yeah, His was name the... was Dr. Victor Seibert. Maybe you better write that down. Yeah. Okay. All that you want to know. Well, just for uh, the sake of history, which is to set the record. S-E-Y-B-E-R-T? Yes, and he was a physician, but 
is he was very wealthy. You see, in America, people who were very wealthy, they worked. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they didn't. And he was an excellent musician. Played the piano and the organ and had an enormous room with two pianos, the chamber orchestra and organ, and received people there. And there were small concerts in this house. And I was educated with a great deal of music. Besides that, he had a library of 5,000 volumes and spoke 10 languages huh. and was one of the most cultivated and interesting men. What but language was spoken in your home? French, because of my mother. And then the governess was Italian, because the children were supposed also to know Italian, because their property were over there and they had to direct them when they other at that time everything went to hell. <coughs> so your, your, your father's wealth consisted of land holdings in Italy? Somewhere? Oh yes, land in Italy and a lot in, in Austria. There were unfortunately 12 servants, you know what that means? Three children, three governesses and tutored at home, privately, no school. And that was a disaster and the advantage of my life, that I didn't practically didn't go to school, except for two years, I think. Mm -hmm. You say there were three children? Three. Well, what were your... You had a my, an older brother who died, was killed off by Hitler because Hitler found that he was a deserter because he lived in France and didn't go back to Austria when Hitler came. And then my sister, who's an excellent photographer and lives in Denver. Now, um, in Denver. Yeah. How much older than you was your brother? One year. One year, and your sister was younger? Much younger, seven and a half years younger. Seven and a half years. Yeah. And what were the names, the first names? My, my brother, Italian name, Salvatore. Salvatore. And my sister, Olga. And my name was three names before. And I shortened that definitely up when I came to the United States because I could never sign. Oh. You know, people have many names. <coughs> what you mean? I don't understand. You mean you? Uh, what was the? Elise, Felicie, Amelie. Three names. Elisa. So I had always to sign that way, and I couldn't. <coughs> <laughs> so they're all kind of French names. Elisa. Yeah, they're French names. Elise. Yes, that is a lot of names to sign on anything. People in this country are not used to having that many names. Of course names. they shouldn't. They make up their own names. It's much better. <laughs> so you, did so you just make up Lisa? Sort of no, no, no. My mother is, was French and consequently she couldn't pronounce a German name or whatever. And then it was Lisette. So she called you Lisette? Everybody. Was your, was your mother uh, uh, involved in the music at all? Was she artistic in any way? My mother, no, she was not very musical, but she painted very well. Oh. And she also wrote very well, poems and things like that. Poems? Poems, yeah. Poems, yeah. You say there were, there were uh, 12 servants. Uh, how did you get along with the servants? Oh, they were the only people I loved. The yeah. only people I really knew. Great education for me. Because they all, there was a butler and his wife and his daughter, so that was a family apart. And that was most interesting. And then there was cook and two chambermaids and a woman in the kitchen and three governesses. Each child had a governess. You know, this is something unheard of, of course, and it's insane. But it was, of course, the knowledge of these people and their lives. And they were poor, and they had illegitimate children, and they were married, and they were divorced. And, of course, they also changed, but not too much. And these were the people, of course, I was very close, because my mother had so much to do with my father, who was always sick, <coughs> that it was rather these people I was close to. Huh. Were you, um, did you have like a governess that, that uh, took care of you when you, from when you were born to, to when you grew up? I mean, did, did you get to know these people? Were they the same? Yes, my, people? my 
It was rather my wet nurse, you see, who came from the country. And when she wanted to go back to her own child, I got so sick that I had to call her back. So then she stayed until I was 12 years old and then got married. Very great attachments, you see. What, what was her name? We had a, we had a, in our Lini. Lini? Lini, but the second name I don't know. How would you spell it? E N I. A E N I. Yeah. Yeah. You're worse than a psychoanalyst, huh? <laughs> well, we have maybe uh, too much interest in facts, but it, it's good to have it straight. So, um, what uh, what did you do uh, around your your home for amusements? Oh, you see. You were involved uh, with music, I assume. And well, first of all, all these teachers who came to teach us, because private tutoring means that you have private tutors, but you have to make an examination at the end of the year in, an, in a public school. Uh -huh. So that was very severe. And then music teachers, and, and uh, then extra Italian governors who came to spend afternoons so that we learned the language and so forth. So did you have many tutors to different, each subject <coughs> a different person? Well, let's say one or two, and then the music teachers, and the Italian one. And I never remember these things the first time in my life. I, I remember that now. And of course, a very, very great disadvantage. And that was that we didn't have children around, my brother and I. Very, very few children, and very rarely did we see them, until I went to school at the age of 12 or so. <coughs> oh, you mean in, like playmates? Yes, playmates. Same thing in, only in summer, when we went to a lake and there were villas and houses were rented, there were children. But then it is the experience of having had no schooling and no children around that made me, I think, having a difficult time to recognize who is who. Children learn that in school, hmm. to know what this child is, what that child is, this one is a little bit intricate, this is a friend, that is an enemy, one has to be careful with this one, this one is weaker, this one is stronger, you know? Ah, <coughs> All that. To learn to judge to people. Learn, to of. learn to, how to live in a society, which I never had. And it had a great disadvantage, and that is that I practically trust everybody, and sometimes it's a disaster. Uh -huh. For instance, Mr. Lon, I shouldn't have trusted him. No. So you think that it was just not having that school, social... I have the feeling that distrusting everybody is comes from there. I could have also developed a non-trusting, mm. but I developed a trusting. And the advantage, of course, was that less conditioned. More open to things happening. You see, one had one's own mind. After all, one was not regimented. The tutors came, but these were friends, and and it wasn't like in school you have to. I don't know what you do. You have to constantly to do what is asked of you, mm -hmm. and that was pretty free and loose. Didn't have the discipline of a school. <coughs> yeah. Not the discipline, and also not the conformism. Because there were no other students. They were just you, yeah, you and exactly. your brother, I guess, primarily. Yeah. yeah. Were the tutors mostly? Um, young men and women who were trying to begin in their field, uh, who were also tutoring? Or that was mixed. Some of them were middle-aged and some of them were, were young, and they made this uh, as an extra job in order to make a better living. Were, were, there were school teachers, all of them. Oh, they were normal school teachers they who tutored on the outside for income. Yeah. Were they all men, by any chance? No, all men and women. Religious teachers, you see. For instance, a priest who would always come and teach us the Catholic religion because it's obligatory in schools. Oh, oh it was a state religion at that point in time in, hmm? in Austria? What? It, was it a state religion almost in Austria at that time? Oh, yes. Uh, Austria is a Catholic state. Were, I didn't know that. Were, were your parents both Catholic? My mother was Catholic and my father was half Jewish and half Catholic. I mean, he became Catholic, but he was half Jewish which was hidden from me until I discovered that by myself. And I always said, my mother always said, 
if you marry a Jew, you can forget about me. And I said to myself, well, and of course I married a Jew. And my, all my friends were Jewish. I adored them. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And then finally, my husband was Jewish. And I said to my mother, now how the hell did you have the courage to tell me that if I married? And she said, well, the fact that I married half a Jew doesn't mean I'm not an anti-Semite. But she changed her mind. <laughs> when Hitler came, she saved many lives. <coughs> it was very superficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was an excellent person. And adored my husband. Let me ask about this summer. You said that you only saw children in, in the summer. Did your family always go in the summer? Did they have a summer place oh, yes. that you always went to? Yes, yes. Do you remember where this was? Was it a lake? That was a lake uh, which was called Wörthersee. It was a beautiful lake, and we always had the same villa rented. And then we went in, into the mountains in Tirol, but always in. Always in houses, you see. Mm-hmm. Is Wurtuze a meaning green something or other? Is that an expression that, uh, or am I just... What? I don't know German, I know some French. I was just wondering if no. the name of it meant... Wurtuze is, is, is just a, a link. Just, just a link. In, in Austria. Car- in Karenia, yes, in Austria. Okay. And also we went a great deal to Italy, to Venice, because of all the properties were around Venice. Were around Venice? Mm-hmm. That must have been very nice. Did you, did you travel any as a family? Yes. <coughs> I traveled to Italy, traveled to France. <coughs> did, did you do this as a family or? Uh, yeah. Did you take the, the household with you, the whole entourage? You said it, huh? <laughs> entourage is the right word. All the servants, all the children. Not the all the servants, but seven. Thank God all that doesn't exist anymore, and if it does, it's not good. So this was your pattern of life, basically, until you were 12 years old? Oh, 15. <coughs> had, uh, 15. What, were the classes just scheduled, like, in your home at uh, a certain time of the week, this tutor would Oh, yes, of course, yeah, they arrived at a certain time, three times a week, four times a week. And in terms of the music training, what, did, what specifically did you, were you learning, or what were you being taught? Well, unfortunately, my father was a marvelous pianist, and he felt the son had to play the piano and the girl had to play the violin. And I really didn't want it, but I didn't realize that because I wanted to play the piano. But then I was trained to play the violin. I played it quite well, but I was really in love with the piano. Did you also learn piano as a... No, I sat down one day and learned it by myself <coughs> and then went to a teacher. When you were, when you were this young? You yeah, did when you 14. Were like 14? Yeah, because it seems like that's just almost a pattern in certain, in certain families that the child must learn some kind of musical instrument. Well, they in, want Vienna, to in Vienna, it's like Madness. Having, he, having hear records. Everyone has to do it. All right? the poor people economize money that their children could learn music and so forth. Hmm. It's the most musical city in the world. <coughs> yeah, I guess. I said was. Maybe is. Probably is. Of course, after the First World War, everything went to Berlin. All the musicians, all the composers, because Vienna was completely ruined. You yep. couldn't couldn't get up anymore. You mean just culturally it was ruined, or, yeah. or the culturally the city? and and economically? All the actors, all the musicians, all the composers went to Berlin, where there was a very great thing going on until the Second World War. But I was never there. Yeah, and there was a lot of theater and music and everything in Berlin. You, uh, you said that you uh, uh, studied with with yeah. Schoenberg, mm-hmm. uh, and I we saw someplace that you that was when you were twelve. Twelve, yes, twelve, thirteen. That would have been nineteen eighteen. Something of that kind. How did? Uh, how did that come about? It came about in a very simple way. At that time, for one year and a half, I went to a school, a very fascinating school. And next to me sat a young girl, and she was Schoenberg's daughter. And I, of course, had never heard of Schoenberg because he was the composer who was completely ne- negated and, and demolished by the music at that time. 
Yes, how do you know? Well, I was just, we, I noticed that Schoenberg had two children that were very near you in age, and that uh, he had a daughter named Gertrude who was a few years that's older than you. That's right. Four, four years older. Yeah. And then, but he remarried the second time, and his wife was also Gertrude, you see, his second uh -huh. wife. And Trudy was uh, my friend, and so I was introduced to her house, and then I learned that there was another kind of music than the one I was used to. Because so far my father was the greatest authority in music, but he played music until Brahms and Liszt and Wagner, and there he stopped. And I'd never heard modern music, you see. Uh -huh. And then <coughs> when I met Trude, I realized that there was something else. And this something else was something that was completely destroyed by the music world all over the world, but especially in Austria. And Schoenberg hadn't had a chance to be played for 20 years. Yeah, his music was And really it was not to be believed, you see. For instance, I do remember that he went to look for an apartment. And he, his daughter was older than I was. And the woman who rented the apartment to him, when she saw his name, she said, are you this co the composer Schoenberg? And he said, yes. And she said, we do not rent an apartment to insane people. <laughs> you know what he did? He went to an insane asylum in Vienna and let himself write a certificate that he was not insane. So far it went. <laughs> and his concerts were riot concerts. I mean, people just, you know, riots. Yeah, the was, police had you to interfere. Huh? Were you ever at one of those when the sure. they screamed and they yelled and they beat each other? And even there, in 1937, when Schoenberg came to Paris, <coughs> six or seven or eight, I don't know when that was, when he left Berlin. No, it was before, maybe 36. <coughs> that I wouldn't know. I think uh, maybe. Uh, I think he came to Paris about 32. I think I have here, or somewhere around. In the, in he the came to Paris. Is that, is that possible? He was in, maybe he was in and out of Paris. He came to the United States in 34. So it was yes, it may have been, because of course I was in Paris. <coughs> and something then was played, which was already completely accepted in Berlin and Vienna, the Pierrot Lunaire and something else. And my singing teacher in Paris was performing the Pierrot Lunaire, which was still very difficult, but very possible. And what was accepted at that time in Berlin, in Vienna, in Brussels, and God knows where, in absolutely couldn't pass in Paris. People started to scream and to yell, and he has had to interrupt and cut out. When the singing teacher attempted to perform Pierre Lunaire? My singing teacher in Paris was a very, very famous singer and musician, whom I met in Vienna when she came from Paris to perform Schoenberg. She came to Vienna? Yes, originally? to perform Schoenberg. What's her name here before we go into uh, Her name is Maria Freund very important woman. Polish, she and Madame Curie and this famous Wanda Landowska. There were three Polish women in Paris who were very famous. Maria Freund, Wanda Landowska and Madame Curie. And she was, this woman was, uh, Maria Freund was an outstanding singer, especially because she had made it her business to introduce and perform modern music from one country to the other. She came to Vienna to perform the French composers like Debussy, Ravel, and all the others, and went over to Paris again and performed Schoenberg and Berg and all that. Hmm. It was quite an extraordinary woman. I guess, yes. Did, uh, <coughs> so um, let me backtrack a second, make sure I understand this. You, you, you were, it's when you, when you actually entered uh, what, a public school or some kind of school that you met uh, Trudy? It wasn't public school, it was kind of a high school, but high school is something else. Was it a gymnasium <coughs> type of Something thing? like that. And of course I don't want to tell you about all the troubles I had in school, because it's not to be believed. I couldn't adjust to school anymore, you see, having been tutored at home. It was too was, late to start. It was impossible. Well, <coughs> why, why, did you, why did you go there? Was that required of you? or? <coughs> no, it was not required, but that would lead into such a complication. You see, because, for instance, my parents didn't have the money anymore to have tutors in the house. Uh. And then the children became completely independent. I mean, I, 
from what my parents wanted or didn't want. That was another kind of a time. And, <clears throat> and so I wanted this school to try out this school, and then I liked it because it was an extraordinary school, absolutely avant-garde. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't run by the church or... Uh, oh, no. That was an international kind of a school, a very famous. The woman who ran this school, that was one of the greatest woman, women in Europe. Who, <coughs> if I want to tell you about that, we're never going to finish. <coughs> well, that's... Uh, well, we've got lots of time. Time is the. Uh, is this, this is not easy for me, you see, because I would have to start out with something else and then come to this and how I came to know that and in which way I had declared to my father that never ever would I go into a school and then <coughs> somebody who was over there invited me to come to the school and to listen to that. And this was another friend of mine, much older than I who studied there and has, was a very famous German actress later on, Helene Weigl, the wife of Bert Brecht. And wife of Brecht? Brecht. Brecht. Yeah. And she was one of the greatest actresses in Europe. And she invited me to come and see what the school was about. And the owner of the school found me very amusing. And my father got in touch with them. And this owner of the school said, why don't you try all the classes you want? And if there is a class you like, why don't you come and sit there and study? This is the way they got me into this school. And this was when you were just 12 years old or 13? 13, 14, 13. <coughs> what, was the, what was the name of the school? Schwarzwald Schule. Schwarzwald Schule. Oh, yes. If you will read the biography of Helene Weigl and about Brecht and so forth, you will find these schools that mentioned there. Now, there was a performance of Schoenberg's <coughs> music at that school. I, I noticed right. in the biography of Schoenberg, because I have it here now, Schwarzwald School, Wallnerstrasse 9. Exactly. Yeah. You know more than I. <laughs> well, I, we try to do our homework, so we don't... It's, it's absolutely stupid. And you know, this woman was the first woman to introduce co-education in her school. She was the woman who... Um, For instance, it was a completely different way of treating students, calling them by their first names. Teacher and student met each other in coffee houses, in restaurants, in the homes of teachers, became friends. <laughs> and, <coughs> and also she saved hundreds of thousands of lives when after the war, the middle classes were the ones which starved to death most. Things were done for the poor people, and then there was a new, the nouveau riche. But the middle class is completely starved out, and she introduced middle class kitchens so that people of these classes could eat. This was Brecht's wife. No, 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 no. This that was, was the owner of the school. What was her name? <coughs> Eugenie Schwarzwald. Oh, Schwarzwald was. And she oh. was also the woman who saved Schoenberg from starvation by giving him the place in the school to teach and by helping. And also she helped many other great artists of that time, including Adolf Loos, the great architect, who lectured there to the children and so forth and so forth. And all the greatest modern artists and and that came right there from Sweden, from Norway, from everywhere, except not from France, not from Italy, from the Nordic countries. Mm -hmm. And it was a fantastic kind of an atmosphere. No child wanted to get out of that school ever. This was set up after the war? This I do not know. Well, let's see, if you were 12, <coughs> it was 1918. Yeah. So it's yeah, just at the end of the war. Just but, but it was a new yeah. school, it had just been... So. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of the most modern avant-garde schools there was. Sounds like it. What, to, to backtrack just a little bit, um, for, uh, the, the reason that you, that you ended up at the school really was the... I was thrown out 18 times in one year and a half. Out of the school? The teachers declared, either she goes or we. <laughs> <laughs> but they and took you back 17 times, <laughs> at least. They didn't take me back at the last time because it was one teacher who declared she would go if I would stay. And this was exactly that teacher who became one of my greatest friends. But they couldn't go on with me. And they did realize one thing, that that was not a bad child at all. 
But I permitted myself things, which was a bad example for the others. For instance, I would come to school at noon. And they said, what the hell the matter with me? Well, my chambermaid wasn't there, so how am I going to button my, my dress from the back, you see? Mm-hmm. Or I got bored, got out and ate my breakfast outside. Or I wanted to go to a concert at 11 o'clock in the morning, a rehearsal. And I said to the professor, I would like to go to this rehearsal. You can't leave the school. Really? I said, and walked out. <laughs> and then they called in a kind of a council of the students to decide if I was wrong or right. And the council of the students decided that I was right. It was more important for me to go and listen to rehearsal of Schoenberg instead of sitting there in a stupid mathematic kind of a class. And so it went. So you really made your own education? From the yes, beginning. dear, but I didn't do it on purpose. I was just what I was. And the girls were crazy about me because I was completely different. You just followed your own head. You were just a free person. Yes, because I was. You see, at the age of 13 or so, I was an adult kind of a young woman. And I, when there were parties at home, I introduced the guests and so forth and so forth. They could have married me off. Uh-huh. And suddenly I should get up when a professor comes in the class. It didn't fit anymore. It was a great mistake to put me in a school. In other words, you were, you were really raised in an adult world from the time you were Absolutely. very small. Absolutely. And that made it difficult. Mm-hmm. But then that was finished after that. After the school? Yeah, and then I went to Paris anyhow. You, you lasted at the school, what, a year, a year and a half? A year and a half, approximately. <coughs> and what, that was, you went there because you were interested in it, because it was an exciting, different oh, I, kind I, of a place. I adored the school. They threw me out. And then well, finally they just couldn't, they couldn't tolerate you and still have a system that worked for all the other students. Yeah. There were too many professors against but the owner was not against. But had to bow She also said, always said, there is a diamond hidden in all that dirt, there's no question about it. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear her saying <laughs> Well, you, you, uh, you, you ended up at that school, uh, you said, because the, your, your family uh, ran out of money for the tutors and the... Yeah, uh, thank God. Was, was that a result of the war? Oh yes, of course, the, because in, in Austria my father lost everything he had. See, I saw him throwing to the fire millions of dollars of paper. I mean, paper worth millions of dollars. This is when my belief in money was finished. Oh, you mean actual money because of the inflation? Yes. <clears throat> and then he had only money in Italy. And in Italy it was, the border was closed. Until many, many years after, you couldn't get money out of Italy. It was an enemy state. <coughs> so that, that money uh, was, was, he didn't lose it, but it was impounded, so to speak. It was finished. You could only lose it in Italy. No, the, the Austrian money had no value anymore. And in Italy, he had property. Ah, and so that... And then he tried to make a living by tutoring people you see on a high level and my mother by giving French lessons and then for five years we lived on the jewelry of my mother you see and then later on the money from Italy could come in again well now, um, but you stayed in that big house the whole time yeah Did you much less servants cut down on everything oh, sure. yeah. so it was just coincided with the war the change in the way you lived yeah. Yeah. If it wouldn't have been the war, I could have been turned. I could have turned out to be to be a disaster. The way I was raised. It saved you from the more of that rich life, though. Of course. Yeah. Maybe we can ask here about some of the uh, things related to Schoenberg. Um, yeah. There's. Uh, I just have. I have here some names of some people that I got out of a biography of Schoenberg, and I wondered if you mm-hmm. knew any of these people or recalled them. Yeah. Um, of course, Alban Berg you, you referred to. You see, Alban Berg and Weben. <coughs> Weben lived at the same place, place outside of Vienna, as Schoenberg, which is a suburb called, small town called Mödling. And Alban Berg lived 
in another sutra, but these three were inseparable. And there was a tremendous friendship between them, and they worked together. So, it's so I saw them every week, because every Sunday, Schoenberg received all the students and all the people who wanted to come. And they came, and many others, and I stayed overnight for the weekend, and so forth. You went out to the suburbs to his home, right? Yeah. <coughs> now, did you actually study composition with Schoenberg? Yes, Schoenberg taught in the, you see, in the school where I was. In the short school. Yeah. So I took the courses in harmony and in analysis, instrumentation, and counterpoint. And I also studied then with the great pianist Strahman for a very short time. Uh, who's that? Eduard Strahman, who died here in New York. Is, and is taught that Steverman? S-T-E-U-E-R. And he was here in the Juilliard School and a very, very tremendous musician. And you studied uh, piano with him? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, he was one of the other names I had here, and I have another name, Erwin Stein. Oh yes, Erwin Stein. Erwin Stein was a student of Schoenbeck who <coughs> studied a great deal with him, then he went to Berlin, I think, and then he got a, later on a very big job in London. And when I was there, he was the one who conducted the 100 rehearsals of the Piero Lunaire, which were performed then in Vienna. And I was present at every rehearsal. This is in Vienna? Yeah, that was in Vienna. Schoenberg at that time was in Holland for a year. Yeah, he went for the Mahler... Um, Mahler festivals. Mahler festivals. And, and Erwin Stein conducted yeah. Irwin? Yeah, he was an excellent musician. And then he was, you know, part of a big edit, editing house in London. That's the last I knew about. Yeah. There's, a, there's one other name here, uh, Dr. Benno Sachs. Did you have any uh, uh, knowledge of him, or uh, does that name sound familiar? I don't know if it matters particularly. Yeah. But there were others, Yalovis, for instance, and, yeah. and other students of his, which if you name them, I, I may remember them. Well, I have some other people here. There was, a, there was this, uh, in 1918, uh, just when you would have I guess turn 12, there was a the Society for Private Music. Oh, that was a tremendous thing. Which I guess was also known as <coughs> the That was one of the greatest things. Longer you see, Schoenberg felt that modern music was unknown, and the people always heard over and over and over again the music until Mahler. And it was just then when Mahler became very much in fashion. Mm -hmm. Not before, because, for instance, my father did not think that Mahler was a great composer. Uh -huh. But the other music was not played. And Schoenberg decided to make a club of modern music where everybody worked as a volunteer, all the artists. And music was played from Mahler on to the day, with the exception of his own, because he did not want that people said that he has created a club of modern music in order that his music should be played. So Webern could be played and Alban Berg could be played and all the modern com composers you see of France and Germany and, and whatever, but not his own music. And that was once a week and there were three, four rehearsals, mm -hmm. either in Vienna or in Mödling in one of the houses of these students. And this is where I got this tremendous education in music because I was always there. It was because I was like a child in the house of Schoenberg, you see. Huh. He liked me a great deal, and he wanted me always to travel with them and to be with them and so forth. Would you ever spend the summer with them at their, when they summered? Uh... They were always there in summer, and every weekend I was there. So you were friends with, uh, with Gertrude? Around she died here. Yeah, she came over with her husband and her children. Her husband was chief editor of, what is this big editing house here? I don't know if it's the lives because he was much older than he, she was. And uh, she died very young. Right after they came over. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a, there's another list of names of people. I don't I know if these people are of any importance to us, but uh, might be interesting. Who were members, who were officers of this private musical performance yes, society? Um, Paul uh, Amadeus Pisk, I think his yes, name. Yes, he's very gifted composer. Was he a composer? Schoenberg student. They were all working in this organization. Here's an, um, Rudolf uh, Wenzel, I guess it would be. Hmm? Wenzel, Wenzel. This one I don't remember. Arthur Prager, or Prager. Mm, Joseph Rufer, Ruther? Yes, Rufer, that was a clarinetist, I think. Very and, good one. Um, a man by the name of Felix Kreisal. That was the, the husband of his daughter, Felix Kreisle. Kreisle? And he married Trude. Trude, yeah. So let's see, Trude was four years older than you. Approximately. So she would have been... Uh, 15, 16. 15, 16. Yeah. So, and did she marry right at that time almost, or shortly uh, after? She married at the age of 17 or something. And I don't know if Chrysler is still alive. He may be. After her death, he married a young woman, and he lives out of town. And I asked Mrs. Henry Carl the other day if he's still alive because he was seven or eight years older than she. And then she had, they had two sons. And uh, do you have another name there? For instance, there was a guy, which extraordinary guy, whose name was Polnauer. He's the, he's the last name I have on my list. Polnauer. Dr. Joseph. Uh, yes, he was an incredible guy. He was killed in a concentration camp. And then there was a woman who was incredible. And she her name was Olga von Ovakovich, and she was a spitzer as high as this room, and she was dedicated to classical music and had never heard and played anything modern. And then by accident she came into this circle, and she changed at the age maybe of 50 from a completely old-fashioned kind of a piano player and a complete modern musician, Fantastic. and died being a Catholic in a concentration camp because she defended the Jews. Well, did, what did what did your father think of your your uh, contact with Schoenberg and his well, people? You what? see, my father was a very intelligent man, and he did realize. But I cannot go into that because my life as a child and in the house of my family was no cinch. And he did realize that I was very young completely emancipated. And by being in this modern school, and by being with Schoenberg, he realized that something was going on, he couldn't interfere. Also, he invited Schoenberg and his wife, and met them, and did realize what an extraordinary and important man that was. And there was no difficulty there. So he was open-minded, relatively uh, open-minded? <coughs> yes, there was no. He still didn't care for the music, I suppose, but... Uh, well, he was a very sick man. He would have never understood Schoenberg, but he was an excellent musician. And then when Mrs. Schoenberg died, unfortunately, also very young, she was in a sanitarium next to our house, and then for weeks Schoenberg lived in our house. And that was also a very terrifying kind of a situation. By that time, the city of Vienna honored him. And this was a little somewhat later? Yeah. This, how old were you, do you recall roughly, when she died? I? Yeah, just to place... Darling, don't ask me all the time how old I was. People <laughs> always ask me how old I was there, how old I was here. I, d I really don't know. Yeah, I guess we, we, can, we can look up when she died. Yeah. That's in the book somewhere. She died... We don't need to bother She died at the age of 44. I you see, the, the interesting thing is that Schoenberg had an enormous liking for me. Almost it happened that he was the one who selected me as a friend for his daughter. Hmm. And when something happened in the school, and God knows it did, hmm. it wasn't my parents who went and uh. discussed my, me 
and try to see the situation or to understand that child. It was Shelley. So you were almost like a daughter in the family. And at that time, I had no connection with my parents. You just came and went, sort of. Well, it was a very difficult situation. And I do realize now that my mother was an excellent woman and my father was a quite excellent man. But there were things going on no child could take. And it's very interesting that at that time in Vienna, there were, in every school, there was a school psychiatrist, you know. But the school psychiatrist was appointed by the city. And when things went wrong in families, the school psychiatrist would come and investigate what the hell happened to this child. And my parents were told that if that would go on, I would be taken away from them. And I would go wherever I wanted to, for instance, to Weimar, was a Bauhaus in Weimar. So there were very conflicting situations there. Mm -hmm. This was, was friction between your parents? Yeah. What? Because I was a child, which my parents, especially my mother, didn't approve of, you see. So what you're really saying, if, if I understand you, is that they were, they were both in their own way very intelligent people and had their interests, but they were not uh, yes, they didn't a kind know. of a parent in the sense uh, they, they yeah. just... Uh, I always feel that I do regret that my father and maybe even my mother didn't see in which way I had uh, evaluated in my life and what I had become because this child was run down from the morning to the night. They just didn't understand the way that you were. Yeah. Did, that, was it, did your sister have the same kind of problem no, with them? No, not at all. Your sister, they was she a very different person? Huh? She was very different. Completely different, much younger, and very well understood. Oh. So this thing, but these things, things happen in families, and there's nothing to be astonished about. Oh, at, at that point, uh, your brother was, uh, was he out of the house by that time? My brother was very ill. You see, during the war, as a child, he had TB. And during the war, he was sent to Italy, to a sanitarium and one lung was taken out. And then he lived in Italy in sanitariums and came back uh, just a little bit before my father died and then again went back. And it was his fault. My sister always said that he was, you see, taken by the Germans because it was his imprudence. If he would have said that he had TB, they would have never taken him anywhere. And anybody who was of Viennese, of Austrian nationality, and wa had not come back to Austria when Hitler took over, was considered a spy and an enemy of Hitler. A traitor. Every, a tra everyone was supposed a traitor. to. A traitor. Everyone was supposed to come back right. and, to the flag and That's exactly. fatherland. Yeah. But he was in in France. At that time he was in France, but mostly he lived in Italy. <coughs> hmm. Well, this is a, I, I was, I had a question to go back to Schoenberg since you were so close with the family and to talk a little bit about some of these things that do relate to Hitler. Uh, I, I was reading in a biography of Schoenberg that one summer, 1921, he went on a holiday at a place near Salzburg with some students and said, and he was asked to leave uh, because he was a Jew. That was the reason given. And I wondered if you, so he moved to somewhere else. Uh. I never heard of that. The only thing I do remember was that he became paranoid because he felt that Rathenau had been murdered and that they were after his life too. Maybe that was that summer. Hmm. Whom had been murdered? Rathenau, that was a German politician who was Jewish. Uh -huh. You see, Schoenberg was Jewish and was converted to Christianism. He, he himself did it. But when Hitler came, he reconverted to Judaism. And his wife was not Jewish. Oh. Yeah, and uh, I guess it was 32. Yeah, I've seen a note about his converting back. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess almost in, as a political act. Oh, definitely. To, to yeah, there was another... Uh, a student of uh, uh, Schoenberg's who taught in Vienna later, uh, a man named Hans 
Jelinek. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it. Uh, uh, say the name again. Jelinek. 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 Jelinek, something like that. He came here to New York. Very gifted. They are all very good composers. Did you know him in Vienna somewhere, or was he? I met him even here. But I mean, had you had you also met him in Vienna? Yes, of course. Yeah. I think he was at the new school or something of that kind. I met him once. Yeah, a lot of people, of course, came through New York, and yeah. we can talk about that later. But yeah. um, and another person who was mentioned as being someone who was teaching in the twelve tone system uh, in Paris, Rene Leibowitz. This one I didn't know. Okay, I just wondered because he would, he may be after me. I don't know. Yeah, <coughs> and uh, did did uh, did you did uh, I'm wondering about Schoenberg's painting because he did okay. some painting. It's very fascinating. You see, I didn't understand anything about painting, and yet I saw them in his house, and he started to paint when he. I was present when he said it, that at a certain moment, either when it was the atonal system he took over, he didn't understand anymore, or the twelfth tone, I don't know which, that he didn't understand his own music anymore. And he could not connect this music organically to other music. And that is when he stopped composing for five years. And this is when he started to paint and work together with Kandinsky. And he gave me his book of paintings. He always gave me things. He very rarely, you know, autographs were out. But he wrote in the Guru Lieder a long thing for me. And then he gave me one thing, which I could kill myself that I don't have it, but I left it in Paris because I didn't go back to Paris. I stayed here. And that was a manuscript of his first chamber symphony manuscript and of course that has an enormous value and somebody in Paris got it and uh, how did you get to this kind of a situation yes and this is when he painted he was kind I think he was a mystical painter I remember the portrait of his mother the portrait of his children and then there were other things yeah we have some slides which we can look at tomorrow we don't have them with us now but of just a few of his paintings. Really? Where did you get that? Well, there's one that's in a, a modern facsimile edition of the Leader. There's a, a self-portrait of his. It's titled Green Self-Portrait. It dates from about 1910. That's a very bold color. What was the date? About 1910, I think. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. You might have seen it. You might have still had it in his house. No, this one I did. Maybe I did. Anyway, we can look at the slides and you'll But know. then he painted much, much... Uh, I don't know. He may have painted at that time when he was in Berlin, because Kandinsky was in Berlin. I, I wanted to ask this in relation to the painting too, because um, what uh, I wanted to ask. You said your mother was a very fine painter. Was she? What was the nature of the kind of picture that she? No, my made? mother was not exactly a very fine painter. She was a painter in a kind of a conservative way, you see, educated in convents and so forth. But she was very gifted for painting. So did she paint like uh, groups of flowers or this kind of a thing, or landscapes? Yes, landscapes, flowers, but in a conventional way. But she was gifted, but that didn't go further. It, it's, it seems kind of curious. I'm, I'm just thinking of the, the parallel here of your father being very concerned with music, but not of modern music, and your mother being very proficient in a very conservative style of painting. And the genre you know, is different in both uh, these things. You see, my father was very modern for his time. Because when my father lived, people didn't go further than Mahler. And Schoenberg was the event where everybody stopped. So he was pretty modern for that, mm -hmm. you see. And, and besides that, he was a very modern man, my father. I mean, his taste for furniture, for everything, absolutely contemporary. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Bauhaus as a thing you thought about. Well, when I didn't get along with my parents, you see, I decided to go to the Bauhaus. And my father agreed, because he felt that my, the situation between my mother and myself was very bad. But Schoenberg didn't let me go. Huh. Well, why not? Because Schoenberg felt that the Bauhaus was partially valid and partially phony. 
and he did not want me to go over there and he talked to me and he said you have enough things here and he just was against it and I did what he said but my life could have been completely changed by going to the Bauhaus. Did he feel that, that there was any anti-Semitism? There were terrific, there were tremendous debates every Sunday between students of his who were great admirers of the Bauhaus and who went there and lived there partially, and the wives of students, and that there were weavers and painters and drawers and whatever they did, you know, and they went back to handmade things and there were debates about some, and Schoenberg didn't believe. A great deal of they were of course very gifted people in the Bauhaus, Kandinsky and Klee and sure, yeah. and some composers. Some people he had exhibited his own work with, his own paintings with Kandinsky. Oh. Schoenberg had exhibited with some of those people, I think with the I didn't know that the Blauweiser people and the Kandinsky certainly. Where did you read all that? Maybe I should read this biography. Maybe I should I should <coughs> give you a copy of that. I don't have it with me, but I can uh, I'll try. Uh, yeah, I think he exhibited with a, a number of German ex so-called expressionist yes. painters. Uh, <coughs> Play and Mark and Kirchen and Franz Mark and Kokoschka and Kandinsky, as far as I know. But when I knew him, he didn't paint anymore. This would have been before, though. It was around yeah. 1905 to 1910 right. or so. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the yeah, so uh, the, the relationship with, the, with his music must have been not the 12-tone, because that was... That was, he was formulating that just about the time that, that you were, were going right. to school there. Exactly. So exactly. The painting must have been I never heard, you see, Schoenberg wasn't played. So I never heard Schoenberg's music. I only heard very little. The Guri Lieder, the first chamber music, uh, chamber symphony, the piano pieces, and then um, the Piero Lunaire, which was composed in 1912. Very early, yeah. And some songs uh, sung in his home, but that was all. And when, then the Blazer Quintet, and then he left already for Berlin. Did you have any contact with Schoenberg in this country? Not at all, because you see, when I came into this country, I had given up music completely, and that. He was no longer in the east, east of the United And States. he was in California, and once he came here. And just at that time, I had a terrible streptococcus throat, and I couldn't, he went to his daughter, of course, and so forth, and I couldn't see him. Hmm. So, did and you then everything in my life had changed to such a degree, you see, that... You never corresponded with him, right? You were in different worlds. I was in photography, I was in painting, uh, and so forth, and so forth. Yeah. Did you have any contact with him in Paris? Uh, I saw him in Paris, and I translated his speech he wanted to make and made, and he wanted to talk it himself. And the son of of this uh, singer, Maria Front, translated it, and he didn't believe a word of what they translated, and then I had to translate it, and then he spoke it in French, and nobody could understand a word because he didn't speak a word of French. French. <laughs> but he didn't trust anybody. This is a, a speech that he gave in Paris or in, yeah. in France. You translated it from German. Yeah. Yeah. I have a I have a terrific kind of a speech of Schoenberg he made here in this country. You have a tape of it, did you say? I have the let I have I read it to my students in every course. It's one of the most unbelievable things. Hmm. Yeah, unbelievable should, things. If you would read that, you would know who the, who the man is. I have yeah. it here. Yeah, I would love to uh, to read it. Maybe to make a copy of it. No, I don't think you can do that. No? Because I promised, because it was a speech he made for uh, an organization who gave him an award. Uh -huh. And Mrs. Cowell, Mr. Cowell, read it here. Cowell? Yes. Henry Cowell, the composer Henry Cowell. Oh, oh yes. And oh, he yes. read it here. I've heard, I've heard. Oh, sure. I heard, he, he came to a little musical performance when I was in high school, I heard him. And he was talking about tone clusters, and I, yeah, I thought it was very strange. He was playing the piano with his elbow, you know, and I thought, this is silly. And I left it in a mission to go get a hamburger or something, because I didn't know that. It was very good. It was very original. But I was too young to know. And, and he was, uh, he read the speech to this society of, I don't know what, I have it here. I read it every time. Was it published anywhere? 
No, it was read to the it's people read, who gave him. A private presentation. Hmm. It's an unbelievable kind of speech. I'm thinking maybe I'll I'll take right now to uh, to call and make a reservation for us to have dinner. Would that be okay? To because sure. it's, it's getting it's getting too late to make a yes. That's a good idea. Make a yeah. what uh, what time would you like to eat? You think? I don't have to eat at all. Oh, you must eat. You see, I didn't know that you would ask so many questions. <laughs> well, I thought that you would only stop.